this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode thanks to our DMO union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. And speaking of the union, Jay, we have a union member returning. He was with us last year. He's back again. Welcome back, Rudy Stell. Rudy! Thank you, guys. Good to be back. Good to see you. Good to have you back. How you been? Things are good here on the coast of California. Trying not to wash into the sea, but other than that, everything's fine. A little wet out there. Got a little it bit is. of rain. Um, so last year, we talked about rides nowhere. And then the year before that was Royal Trucks, Cats and Dogs. But in between, you joined us for a roundtable of this little band called Soundgarden. Would that have anything to do with your pick for this episode? Probably. Yeah, I'd wanted to pick it before. I thought it might be a little bit too mainstream, but I figured I got enough time in with the union now that I can uh, go to some, <laughs> of my favorite, some of my favorites. And, uh, you know, like I had said, that it's uh, surprising. Everybody knows this album, but only two songs ever get airplay. The first two songs on the album ever get any type of real airplay. Uh, and it's interesting. I was looking at setlist.fm and the f- top five songs they ever played in concert are all from this album. Oh, interesting. So we previously, back in May of last of 2021, actually, we did Soundgarden in the 80s. It was our first 80s origin episode where we looked at a band that was popular in the 90s and then went back into their 80s catalog to see what they looked, what they looked and sounded like as a new band before they reached the heights of, of popularity. And this is actually a, a nice continuation of that because we, we cut off right before this. So now we're going to get to talk about bad motor finger, which came out in 1991, uh, October of 91, which was just, was it one or two? It was two weeks after nevermind was released. So the, the, the juggernaut that was Nevermind hadn't happened yet. It was starting to happen um, because uh, Smells Like Team Stewart would start blowing up. But interestingly, I looked this up. I thought, you know, Out Trying to Rusty Cage would be the first single. Jay, do you know what the first single was released? Uh, Jesus Christ pose, right? Yeah. Yeah. Very strange choice. <laughs> Why would I... <laughs> I mean, awesome song, but my God, that yes. is <laughs> not well, a radio single. I can tell you that I was listening to, we used to listen to college radio out of Cal Poly on the job site, building contractor, and they had gotten the single and they weren't supposed to play it yet, but it was college radio. So the girl says, okay, this is the new sound guard. It's called Jesus Christ Posse. You guys need to check it out. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, wow, they really took a turn. I didn't yeah. see them going like, Jesus <laughs> rock. Okay. Yeah, they're wearing, wearing the striper uniforms and everything. <laughs> so I do, I had, a, my wife is a big Chris Cornell fan. And um, I was, I told her, you know, we're doing Soundgarden. 
and I mentioned, you know, there's a lot of material. Either there's the EP. There were some with all the re, uh, remastered and deluxe editions. There's a bunch of B sides and and um, alternate versions, and there's a couple of outtakes. And on the disc seven of the super deluxe 2016 version is Birth Ritual, which is on the single soundtrack. It's one of my favorite Soundgarden songs. And she yeah. goes, "Do you remember?" that you made a birth mix for when we went to the hospital. <laughs> no. And I was like, no. And oh, she's like, you, you were going to put this. birth ritual on there for when I was having my cesareans. <laughs> Oh man, that is so you. you got a mosh pit going in the surgery room. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Get the circle pit going in there. Yeah. Oh my god. It was cut. It did not reach. Yeah. It did not make the final mix of uh, the birthing mix. <laughs> I don't know what was on there exactly because I tried to find it in my on my computer and I couldn't find it anywhere. Um, so if anybody out there has my birthing mix, if you could share that, that would be great. Perhaps <laughs> a doctor a or a nurse who was in the delivery room at that time. I'm assuming you didn't play Brick by Ben Fold. Oh, no, we played Lightning <laughs> Crashes. Uh, <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, let's a little bit of I don't need to get into the history of Soundgarden because we already covered that in an entire episode. But for the specifics of this record, it was produced by Terry Date, who had already had a big resume, but also worked with a lot of bands after this. Metal Church, Dream Theater, Overkill, Pantera, Fishbone, Prong, White Zombie, Deftones, Slipknot, Limp Bizkit. He's got a resume, a heavy resume. Released on A&M Records. It was recorded, as mentioned, uh, Jesus Christ Pose was the first single that was released. Um, I guess prior to the release of the album, because that's what they used to do back then. They'd drop a single a couple weeks before the record comes out. Right, right. Um, Outshined was released in December, and then Rusty Cage was not released until the following March. As far as um, success with this record, it made it to number 39 on the U.S. Billboard 200, 54 on the Australian ARIA chart, 50 on the Canadian Top Albums and CDs chart, and 39 on the UK Albums chart. Um, it made it to, well, for the singles, Jesus Christ Pose did not chart in the US, nor did Rusty Cage, which is interesting. I would have thought it would, but only Outshine, uh, Outshine t- uh, charted at 45 on the US Mainstream Rock chart. Um, it's certified double platinum in the US and it's gold in the UK, platinum in New Zealand and Canada and gold in Australia. It's been mentioned in a lot of like greatest albums of all time. Guitar World has the greatest guitar albums of all time. Kerrang, 100 albums you have to hear before you die. Um, Revolvers, the great, the 69 greatest metal albums of all time, which uh, I guess we can get into metal versus grunge versus hard rock and trying to delineate those lines when it comes to this record because i don't know where those fall exactly but we'll talk about it they toured with guns and roses i don't know if that's right 
They, they were opened for the for Use Your the, Illusion uh, tour. That's right. In fact, I remember watching. Um, we did. We got a pay per view. At some point on that tour, they did like a pay per view thing, mm. and uh, I remember watching Songgarden set, and it was so weird because I mean, they were a new band and just like a four piece without any like, you know, no big stage show, and they were just right. on this gigantic use your illusion stage they just look like ants up there it was so bizarre so this was their first album with ben shepherd on bass he replaced replaced jason everman who i believe was the second bassist wasn't it um was it hero i can't remember his last name yamamoto yamamoto was the original bassist so did everman play on louder than love or was that yamamoto did everman was everman on a record I can't remember. I don't want to have to double check that. No. So Everman must have just been playing live and stuff because mm. he doesn't he doesn't appear on. Uh, but Jason, Jason's got quite the resume for all the bands he played in and all the stuff he did. Um, and then, of course, this was followed up three years later by Super Unknown, which I feel like if you're talking to the average person and maybe radio listener. They probably know most, mostly songs from Super Unknown and then also Down on the Upside. Yeah. So like songs like, you know, Fell on Black Days or The Day I Tried to Live or Spoon Man. Those were like the those are the radio singles that get played on like classic rock radio now. You're not hearing Jesus Christ pose on like your the, the classic rock station that plays like Zeppelin and the Stones and, and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden. You're hearing the more radio friendly stuff. Yeah. Did you buy this when this came out, Jay? No, I uh, <clears throat> I had gone back. So I got into the record. I bought Super Unknown when it came out. And I think I got into the back catalog a little bit. Like I picked up Louder Than Love. And those were the two, the two records that I listened to the most was Super Unknown and Louder Than Love. I didn't really get into this one until probably streaming. Where it was like, okay, I'm gonna like invest in more of the catalog. I just had the impression of like Outshine was so overplayed that I just had a tendency of to not buy records that were overplayed. Hmm. I, I just felt like I'm gonna hear on the radio a billion times. Why am I gonna spend, you know, I mow lawns or whatever I did for a job? <laughs> it was like <laughs> I got 30 books to spend this month. What am I gonna spend it on? I'm sure shit not gonna buy records that are on the radio every second. So right, unless I was ahead of the band. Once I heard it on the radio, I was like, well, I'll just listen to it on the radio. So I didn't get into it till till much later. I got it at some point in the 90s. Unlike Rudy, who bought it the day it came out, we we're both behind. Um, I, and I bought it on CD with the bonus EP because I found it at like uh, used kids or something like that here in Columbus. Probably what probably wasn't even that expensive, to be honest. Like a lot of this because by the end of the 90s, people had started trading in stuff so like you could pick up pearl jam and and soundgarden and nirvana cds for relatively cheap at the end of the 90s um so i made a point i think i found out through the internet that there was the ep version and i was like "Ooh, i wonder if i could find that and i i found it somewhere um i miss when those things would happen where you'd be like oh well there's the normal version and then there's this one version that has like five extra songs on a has that weird kiss weird cd case that like it opens up, but then it has an extra flap inside, and you're you get this surprise. 
that doesn't really surprised. happen anymore. You can never it, put it back together. Yes, <laughs> they broke so easy and you couldn't replace them because you couldn't buy those special CD cases. Or there, the big double ones, which never fit videos got properly. played a ton too. Mm -hmm. So um, I was very familiar with Rusty Cage and Jesus oh, Christ yeah. Pose and even stuff from Louder Than Love would get played. I mean, MTV, either mainstream MTV or Headbangers Ball played them. 120 minutes played them like they got a a ton of video play which i also made me like feel familiar with this record to beyond just outshined yeah and like you i i kind of gravitated more towards super unknown because that was where i got like comfortable with the sound and then went back to this yeah so yeah. i'm fairly comfortable i mean i'm fairly familiar with this record i haven't listened to it in a while but i there was a period where i was listening to this a lot I think when back 20 years ago or 10 years ago, we, when we used to go to the gym, I would like bring this, you know, and, and listen to it on my MP3 yeah. player before there was a, a phone to put it on. Well, well, I'll put it this way without spoiling my review, but if I'm going to listen to Soundgarden, it's going to be this record or be, or before it. <laughs> right. I'm not going to listen to anything after this record. Well, just cause it's so overplayed. Yeah. I'm just so sick of it. I'm so sick of it. In fact, when I saw them live, um god what was that maybe eight years ago ten years ago was that rock on the range yeah i finally saw them headline one of those nights and i was glad they did play a lot from this and a lot of older stuff and skewed a little bit away from some of the later records that i didn't love as much which was pretty cool and even the stuff not to diverge too much but even the stuff that's on like down on the upside or super unknown i tended towards the album tracks like yeah. a song like Rhinosaur on Down on the Upside is cool because it has like the weird time signature and it's mm -hmm. guitar driven and it wasn't a single. So it sounds more in line with like Bad Motor Finger as opposed to Pretty Noose or or some of the even I mean Pretty Noose still has some cool riffage in it. But yeah. there's there's other songs that I could go without ever hearing again. I don't have need to hear Fell on Black Days again. No. It's, it's a nice song, but it's I'm, I'm over that or a black hole sun or uh yeah I, honestly i didn't like that song when it came out i didn't either <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with admitting that now like i love i really like soundgarden but i i just never got that song yeah no that's it's it's an abomination but there's, there's a, <laughs> that's there, wow that is there, harsh there's, there's a song on this album that i put only second to black hole sun is that i don't like but i it's not a popular popular view okay well Speaking of not popular views, you know, we do put up a poll for every episode of were the album better EP and decent single, because that's what we do at the end of the episode. And we have, um, you know, feedback from that poll that we're going to be sharing, but it is not a, it is not a, uh, a completely worthy album uh, for this record. There are people who, who voiced opinions that are going to be interesting. Um, let's get into them a little bit. So, like, for example, um, Scott Holgram said their last great album and probably their second best overall behind Louder Than Love. It could probably lose a couple of the longer, more meandering tracks, but easily a worthy album. And that instantly set off the I mean, that, I think that was like the first comment. And like it set off the comment section immediately uh -oh. with him dropping the super unknown uh, diss track right there. And uh 
Like Lars said, blasphemy. But yes, this album is fantastic. Darren Leach, Scott, you knew typing those words would get you in trouble. (laughs) And he responded, I am indeed aware of how overrated Super Unknown is. (laughs) Willie Dillon said, boo, boo this man. Uh, And and Richard Waterman said, Super Unknown might have something to say about that. Kyle Bittner, this is my favorite Soundgarden album by far, with every song being a winner. I still have my original with Psalms. Anything other than a worthy album is simply wrong. Okay, Joe Pennycock. Once when I was in my 30s, I was in a nightclub with a friend. A much younger lady decided to talk to us and got into her head that she'd make a request to the DJ on our behalf. I asked for a rusty cage, but it somehow became burning carriages. (laughs) Because she had no idea what we were talking about. Anyway, great album. Uh, Nate Smith, easiest decision in a while, worthy album. Gavin, clear, worthy album. My entrance to the band is still my favorite. A heavy groove that has stood the test of time. Richard Waterman, not many rock bands have released two albums back-to-back. They're as good as Bad Motorfinger and Super Unknown. Scott Hogram would disagree. Uh, Jim Copany, I'm dying to see if anyone says worthy single. Well, you're going to find out. He said this is probably the most cohesive album Soundgarden has ever produced. I think that's an interesting statement we might return to that scott Witt, big step forward from louder don't know if it was the addition of shepherd or them growing up some as much as i don't like kim thayall jesus christ pose is one of my is one of the greatest riffs he doesn't like kim thayall who doesn't like thinking thayall i don't know maybe <laughs> what did he, he do I'm probably pronouncing Kim Thale's name wrong too you're pronouncing it right but he's a yeah he's such a quiet guy i don't know how you could not like him they must have gotten into a personal thing. Yeah, they must have, yeah. At a, at a club or something. Just keeps his head down and plays yeah, badass riffs. I know. Uh, Willie Doan said, almost as great as Down on the Upside and Super Unknown. Unknown. Fight me, Scott. <laughs> um, Richard Dodgen, who just joined us. I forgot to mention at the top of the show, he has just joined us. The new member of the union. Welcome, Rich. Hey, Hands down, my favorite Soundgarden album, Jesus Christ Pose, was the strange, fast-moving, broody track that brought the band to my attention, but the rest of the album is just as cool. All killer, no filler. Um, Darren Lehman said, I was fortunate enough to see Soundgarden in 2015. They played Jesus Christ Pose, Outshine, Rusty Cage, and Slaves and Bulldovers. They were incredible, and Chris's voice was strong and powerful. Worthy the album all the way. Darren Leach, I haven't listened to this album in a while, but I owned it many moons ago. In Australia, they issued it as a double CD pack with Super Unknown. That's weird. That's like when they used to do those cassettes in the in the 70s yeah. and 80s where you get one album on each side. Right. It would be like <laughs> you get like, you know, Blizzard of Oz on one side and or not Blizzard. What were the first two Ozzy albums or something like that? Like it was it was were weird. Yeah, because vinyl was shorter, you could get two records on a cassette sometimes yes um it's a worthy album it still needs some editing track three slaves and bulldozers bulldozers does not need to be almost seven minutes long neither does searching with my good eye closed drawing flies i completely forgot has sacks in it and the last two tracks are okay but easily we left off the album as they have elements of the previous tracks i'm not getting anything new from them plus i found my interest fading i'm an at an eight or nine track album Ian McIver, while I've enjoyed albums from Pearl Jam, Nirvana, and Alice in Chains, for some reason, Soundgarden has never resonated with me. Even when they were on the bill with Nine Inch Nails in 2014, I was bored by their performance, and I 
and it wasn't from my anticipation for Nine Inch Nails to take the stage. I think that's a weird pairing, to be quite honest. Nine Inch Nails has a very specific sound and a very specific like stage presence and a performance. Yeah, yeah. And Soundgarden is just a big ass, huge rock band. So uh, yeah, I could see though, like obviously seeing that pay per view I mentioned, but also see them live myself in a soccer stadium. They're not. They sh- they're not a great big venue band. I would want to see them in a theater or smaller. I think they, like they're they just never, not big they personalities. To, they never knew who to pair Soundgarden with. I told you the first time I saw them, they were opening for Voivod. I saw them another time they were opening for Danzig, which was bizarre and almost led to a whole bunch of fights because it was Danzig people and and mm. the rest of the Scrunch people, which was a strange pairing. Yeah. Um, when I saw them the last time in Vegas, uh, the Mars Volta opened for them, which was actually, that was a good, I think that was a pretty good pairing. But over the years, they didn't know who to put them with. And like I said, having them open for GNR, I know Chris Cornell said it was awesome. He'd go out there and go, I'm singing to 25,000 people and nobody knows any of our songs. And he said it was right. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Continuing with Ian, he said, going back to listen to this album to ensure I'm not blindly voting against the grain only reinforced my decision. While Rusty Cage now shined her obvious and recognizable radio singles, the rest of the album just didn't retain my interest and didn't elicit a response from me. While this band and album is obviously not within my musical interests, it is not the reason for my voting decision. I know there are important albums within my scene that would get a reciprocating vote from the DMOU audience, but I'm going to be that guy and say decent single. That guy. Um, Jeff Gentis said, I'm with Ian on this. Outshined is great. Rusty Cage is interesting. I did like Super Unknown and thought the singles off that album were much better when in context with the album. And I want to like this, but it just doesn't resonate with me. Interesting. I can see that point of view. If you, if you are more of the Super Unknown down on the upside, polished three and a half, four minute long radio songs, this could be a confusing record for you because yeah, even though the no. singles are known, they're still weird songs. Um, and we'll get into it. So those are all your, all our comments about this record. Um, let's talk about it. We've built up the suspense enough. Uh, Jay, I know you're going to take a giant dump on this record. So why don't you start first <laughs> with tell me one thing you liked about revisiting Bad Motor Finger by Soundgarden. What I like is it's the sweet spot in their catalog. They haven't gotten to the point where, you know, they're trying to write three minute songs. They're still playing their asses off. Um, I think Ben Shepard coming to the band, you just hear this new rhythm section that seems to be having a blast playing together. The, the, The middle sections of Jesus Christ pose and face pollution, they just, go into these amazing like proggy grooves with these turns and twists to them that um, keep make your head spin. And you can just hear like, you know, that weird bass tone he has, it's kind of fuzzy and, and, and grindy. You hear all the strings hit, you know, he, um, that he's playing hit his fingers playing. Uh, it sounds like he's playing with his fingers. The drumming is incredible. Uh, so you get these cool, weird uh, experiments almost in intros or middle sections. Sometimes they even creep into like Rusty Cage and just how at the time when I heard that riff, it just was like 
the most bizarre thing I had ever heard on guitar. It just didn't make any sense to me. I was like, how, how can this be a riff for a song? I don't understand. <laughs> like it's making my, if it's making me dizzy listening to it, but I kind of like it. Um, you know, so it has this really sophisticated sense of rhythm. And I think obviously that comes from Matt Cameron, but it also comes from uh, Chris because he was a drummer. And if you listen to them, them talk about their early, you know, band forming and them writing songs is he was, he was bringing that to, that was a big part of what they were trying to do was like create these weird time signatures and changes. Uh, and they honed that for a long time. And I think him, you know, eventually moving to obviously vocals, but even bringing some guitar, you know, later and just, that coming from a rhythmic like sort of drum standpoint uh, they just they're able to walk this line where it's experimental but it's accessible it's heavy and emotional so it's easy to like physically get into this record you know it's like it's got that weight behind it and the grooves are so intense that like it's not conf confusing like just to passively listen to it. Like you just get into it emotionally, but when your brain starts paying attention to it, then all of a sudden it's almost like a puzzle of like, well, where's one and what, you know, they go through these sections where all of a sudden things seem straightforward. And then all of a sudden it gets a little bit off and you're like, what, what did you just, what happened? Okay. We're back again. You know, it just messes with your head a little bit as you play it, pay attention to it. You don't uh, always know what to expect. So you sort of like this tension around, being able to sort of anticipate where you're going, but then also it changes enough that, you know, it makes it fun and interesting. And I don't know a lot of bands that are able to pull that off. I think, I think there's a ton of bands that I love or have heard that want to be more experimental, but also be accessible. Like they want to potentially have a hit song or at least a popular song. And they want people to like, be able to groove and get in the music physically, but they also want to like be a little weird, you know, and try some things that are different and play with different sounds and different rhythms. And this is one of the few bands that's actually been able to do that and be like super commercially successful. Uh, it's, it's pretty unusual to the point where like, as we're breaking down the catalog, it's like two of the singles from this record are, are some of their weirdest songs. Um, at least on the record, you know, in terms of rhythmically what's going on there, they're, they're weird time signatures and have, you know, strange guitar riffs that are, I mean, even the intro to Jesus Christ pose that, that riff uh, that builds out of the toms is like, uh, it sounds like a sample from a, a like a larger guitar part. Um, it's, it's very strange, but then they flock into a cool groove, you know, in the verse. So it, again, it illustrates that you know, doing weird things to kind of mess with your head and then getting more straightforward to kind of pull you in emotionally and kind of feel it. And then taking you on a journey through a middle section or a turnaround or there's a couple spots where just Matt Cameron just kind of goes off on his own for a measure, you know, and, and plays against the, the rhythm. And you're like, what, what, what? You know, the bass and guitar are still where they were, but like the drums are in a different place. And then he comes back and locks right back in again. So it's just, it's a roller coaster uh, in that way. And uh, 
you know, I think this also marks from a production standpoint, a real breakthrough for them. Um, you know, louder than love sounds, sounds good. I think this goes to a whole other level in terms of figuring out how to mix everything. So it still sounds big. You can still hear everybody. Obviously the vocals are right in the right place. Um, so you get to appreciate the full range that Chris Canal brings to, you know, him singing from sort of the high stuff to the screaming to the angsty kind of lower tenor to even some of the more mellow delivery that later on he becomes much, much more known for. Um, like on some of the down on the upside stuff where he's you know not really doing the screaming much anymore. So it's a uh, it's got a huge dynamic it's experimental but accessible and it's got a production that you know it's just big rec it's a big great sounding rock record uh what's not to love think tim well i liked revisiting this because being able to focus in and analyze why it works for me so well um i was able to pick out little bits and pieces obviously with the singles you know rusty cage just to start out with that one it's so unique in its i mean it sounds like metal but not like anything i've ever heard you know what I mean? Like there's a, I can draw comparisons to like, you know, it's got these aspects to it, but they don't really sound like anything specifically, no. you know, whereas like you can, you can hear a band you go, well, they're clearly influenced by Black Sabbath or something like that. There's not a lot of direct lines that I can hear. So with like Rusty Cage, I love that there's little touches, like the way that his voice comes in before he actually starts singing. I always yeah, thought that was like such a cool effect. Um, I love the breakdown in that song because it just comes out of nowhere. And then you just like this, this, this sludgy, heavy breakdown that is so not radio friendly. <laughs> it just sounds like a, it sounds like a dinosaur. It's just so heavy. It sounds like a lumbering dinosaur at the end of that song. Yep. Um, and then Outshined has a lot of weird little time signature things going on where they'll be like doubling back on parts and, and cutting things off early. And it's those two. So you take them out because everybody knows those. So you get into the rest of the record. One of the things I forgot is how weird parts of this record is. I mean, there's like horns in part of the record. Yeah. And you're like Soundgarden with horns. Like, <laughs> yeah, there's two track, two songs with horns, right? Exactly. So yeah. I, and I love that 
you know, they're on a major label. Shit's starting to blow up in terms of not even Nirvana yet, but I mean, there's still like the alternative, like sound is coalescing, you know, with, I looked uh, uh, just briefly after they did the uh, user illusion tour, then they went on tour with skid skid row. <laughs> and then they went back on tour with guns roses also with faith no more. So when we talk about that, like explosion of yeah. alternative, you got to remember it's like Jane's addiction to faith, no more REM, all those bands were already setting the, you know, the, the table for Nirvana to explode. Um, and you hear that little, I mean, you hear the little bit of weirdness that a Faith No More would have. Like, they're as much influenced, I think, by what you would think of as traditional hard rock, heavy metal bands as they are by, like, weirder stuff, which is what makes them interesting um, on this record especially, because it's such a great, heavy, hard rock, grunge, heavy metal, not, you know, whatever you want to call it. It kind of goes by song by song. You know, face pollution has like a punk energy to it, yep. a hardcore energy. Um, and then you get like Jesus Christ pose with that. I don't even know what that riff. I mean, it's kind of speed metalish, but they're not playing that fast. But it's got that. You know what I mean? Like that could be that could be on an Anthrax or something record. That yeah. riff. Um, so I like base, that there's base pollution, like it's punky, but damn, that's a great groove. Yeah, it's like uh, <laughs> most bands would play that group, play that song way slower. Mm-hmm. So I kind of appreciate that. That's a good example of, um, you know, they flip it and they're like, no, we can we can take that same like, you know, fuzzy, crazy riff and we can play fast and we can do a really interesting like rhythm under it. It's not just your typical punk beat. Yes. And throughout the record, you know, you get, I think, elements of what you heard on Louder Than Love, but just refined. And like you said, the production is just like kicked up a notch, which is weird because it's Terry Date on both yeah. records. So you would think like, oh, their production would be pretty close. But there is like a fullness. I think part of that is Ben Shepard. Yeah. Um, the way he's playing bass, his tone. I know he contributed song-wise because he wrote one of the songs on this record um, somewhere, which when I listen to that, I go, oh, this I can hear the, the, the future of Soundgarden. Like that, that could be an album track on Super Unknown. And he also wrote um, on later albums, he wrote uh, No Attention, which... Um, no, not attention. Uh, he wrote uh, Switch Opens and he wrote Never Named and Ty Cobb, Dusty, um, Head Down. There's a lot of songs by him and I'm like, always, they're always a little bit off because he likes messed up stuff. So I can hear that influence where they're not just like heavy, but they're heavy with this weird, it's not quite progressive, but it's just like, because I don't think that they were intending to write songs in 5-4 and 7-8. And I think they were just like wanted to screw around with the time signatures and just cut things off and make them awkward. Yeah. Well, somewhere you listen to the run under the chorus. So listen to the, like what the gu- guitars and drums are playing. They're like playing this like, and he's singing a chorus over that. That makes no sense to write a chorus mm-hmm. over. 
Yeah. Like no other band would write a chorus over that part. That's a they'd complex like, part to write. Look, yeah. They'd be like, oh, that's over. the transition to the next part, right? We'll do this mm-hmm. run and then we'll go to the chords and watch we'll the chorus over. And they're like, no, 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 no. We're actually going to, that's the chorus. That's the hook. But it, it's not bizarre in a way where it's like hits you in the face, like, oh, yeah, we're trying to be super experimental and weird. It, you know what right. I mean? It's like, oh, this is different. And you start really listening to it. And you're like, what the hell? Like, that's not what you that's not what you're taught in rock songwriting school. Rudy, we have talked a lot here. We would like your input as the suggestor on, on this record. Uh, what made it? What made you bring it to us, and what works best for you? Just a huge Soundgarden fan, um, and having been, I know we've covered this on the the Soundgarden in the '80s show. Uh, like I said, the first song we heard was on college radio, and I had a couple of guys working for me. We were all got into the music at the same time, and after we listened to Jesus Christ Posse, as they they called it on the on the college radio. <laughs> I remember Steve, a kid that worked for me for a lot of years, said, no, they finally did it. They went full Metallica and they were just like, we're done with them. We're done with Soundgarden. But that was every every album. Oh, they've gotten too commercial. Everybody was mad when Hero left the band um, because he was a little more, he wanted to go a different direction with it. They thought people thought it was too mainstream. I actually liked it from the beginning. Um, You know, I'm a big hard rock guy i liked i liked the direction they were going with it but yeah there was there was some some controversy to it but it's really it's really held up and to this day my single favorite Soundgarden song it goes back and forth between flower and searching with my good eye closed that song the only problem with that song is the fade out ending if they would have figured a way to land it like they did rusty cage i mm. think it would have been but i i bet i've listened to searching with my good eye closed five thousand times in the last 30 years I mean, that's such a great, that's like what you want at the centerpiece of your album. You know, it's, it's an epic song. So that. It is. And it's got every element that I love about Soundgarden. I mean, the, the CNSA opening is funny because I've heard people try to analyze that. And I know the story behind it. It's just Chris Cornell and his buddies were just playing. They were playing with the, one of those CNSA machines and it was falling apart and they were stoned or whatever. And, it just kept garbling things. And at one point, Chris goes, the devil says. And so that was the whole thing. And people, people have tried to read a bunch into it. And it was just a throwaway thing that they thought was funny. As a lot of the stuff and a lot of these songs that people try to analyze, when I've heard interviews with the band, they're like, yeah, we don't know what it means. It was just something we threw in there. You know, we were just having fun, like with the time signatures and stuff. It's like, yeah, we didn't sit down and plan to do these crazy time right. signatures. That's just, how it all came, that's just how it all came together. Yeah. But, I've also heard that, that people say, and I agree with this, that this album best captures what they sounded like live. 
And this is this is Soundgarden Live is in is in this album as close as they can get. Yeah. But it's it's I've never really heard. I know that uh, I think it was Sean that the the kid that grew up going to see them in the clubs and stuff when we had the Soundgarden Roundtable. And I remember asking him, I said, did they ever capture them on tape like they were live? And he said, nah, it just, you know, there's something about it you just couldn't capture the same as when they were alive. So, and that's what's so interesting about music. I mean, some bands, it just doesn't translate in other bands. It's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. And that's, uh, okay. Oh, the the live point makes me think of, uh, I agree, like seeing them live in 2015, they sounded like this record. Like everything they play to me sounded like this this particular tone. The other thing that's weird about them, or specifically Ben Shepard, is I don't understand. Like when I hear him play and I watch him play, the two things don't make sense. <laughs> no, because <laughs> he wears his bass super low, yep. and I don't think he plays with his fingers. I think he plays with. I can't tell. I'd have to go back and study it, but when you listen to the bass playing on this record, like, Oh, this is like a geezer Butler type player, like doing a lot of stuff with his right hand and his, you know, fingers on his right hand and like really grooving heavy and doing a lot of work. And when you watch him on Ben Tepper on stage, you're like, is that dude even plugged in? <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> the bass is at his ankles. And I don't, I don't know what he's doing. He's just like <laughs> wandering around, stumbling around, but somehow like there's this thunderous bass coming out of the amp. Like, I don't get it. So I was going to mention um, uh, if you've ever tried to play a Soundgarden song based on tab from the internet, it's probably wrong yeah. because of, you mentioned Rudy. They did a lot of weird stuff on this, not because they were like, we're going to be rush, but they were just wanted to screw around and like, what if we did this? Um, so like you mentioned about Cornell's lyrics, they're not necessarily cohesive. A lot of it is just like, this sounds cool. So that's what I'm going to sing. Yeah. With regards to guitar playing, though, so we're familiar with drop D, which is when you tune the 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 low E string um, down to D, gives you a nice heavy tone. Also, you can just play with one finger. So um, if you're not a good guitar player, you can still <laughs> throw out some riffs. No, they didn't go just to D. They went to B. They skipped C oh, entirely wow. and tuned oh down to B. So that heavy part in Rusty Cage was like, dur, dur, dur. oh, that's what's going on. That's why it's so heavy. That's why you hear all that. That's what I'm, um, I'm like, totally geeking out about. Is in mm-hmm. especially in those middle sections where things get like super groovy and they're locked in. You're yeah, you're hearing those strings just on everything, like bend, and you're hearing all this movement, and yeah, it just gets super trippy. And if you've ever played guitar, you know, when, when you start to tune the string, you're loosening it up when you go low. Yeah. So if you're going to B, that's a pretty, pretty flabby string right there. Yeah, they're just going to be sla- it's like slopping around. That's yeah. crazy. <laughs> so I mean, I know bands went to C, which seems crazy to me, but B is like, yes. I don't know how that would work. That's So that's um, Rusty Cage, Searching With My Good Eye Clothes, and Holy Water all feature uh, E to B. Mind Riot. This is bizarre to me, Jay, and I'm going to say this, and you're going to be like, wah, wah, wee, wah. Mine Riot, every string is tuned to several different, to, to octaves of E. So you have high E and low E, and then they yeah. went to all different octaves on the other strings oh of E, gosh. like higher and lower. 
I don't even know how that's possible. <laughs> like I want to p- get my guitar out yeah. and start tuning, but I'm afraid I'm going to break all the strings. Cause I'm like, you'd probably have to use it... different, different gauge strings to you must be able have to, to tighten have... them enough and loosen them enough. And that's where I think when we talk about alternative music and, and this being an alternative record, that to me reminds me of like what Sonic youth would do. Yeah. Sonic youth would tune the entire string, you know, guitar to F and come up with these weird chords or they would, you know, take one of the strings off, like Keith Richard would take his his high E off and then tune everything to G to get something. Um, that's a very not artistic, but it's it's such a it's such a like not hard rock thing to do. Hard rock, you're playing in drop D or you're playing in a half step down. Yeah, that makes sense. Listen to that song. He's I, I really like the pull-offs he, they're doing. Like there's these like, mm-hmm. and usually if you do that on a standard tune guitar, or even a drop D with distortion, it just, it, it sounds like shit. Like it all, like you don't get any resonance out of those notes and they just sort of like, oh, um, that, that type of like, you know what I mean? Intricate kind of pull off harmonic thing. Yes. But if it's all tuned the same, like an open tuning, that would make much more sense of like how you're able to play that kind of rift and still have it be like distorted heavy and clear. into learning about the record is as much an interesting like is as interesting as listening to the record because you go oh that's how they did that and that makes it even weirder that they even chose to do it that way like i wouldn't have even thought of doing it that way um so anyway wow yeah well i think the again going back to my point about experimental but accessible there's a there's a musicianship here, I think, with this band, at least for sure at this point in their career, where yes. like everybody is incredible, right? I mean, you have a top-notch oh, yeah. singer that can sing anything. He can sing, you know what I mean? There's no limitations to him vocally. There's no limitations to Matt Cameron as a drummer. I mean, I, I think he enjoys playing in a jazz band more than he plays enjoys playing rock. Like the dude can play whatever, right? Mm-hmm. I think Ben Shepard was sort of I think for me underappreciated until I really got into this record and then you start to realize like, Oh, well, this guy's a badass too. And then Kim Thale is like, I think the one in the band where everybody's like, Oh yeah, that, that guy's obviously really good. Cause he doesn't <laughs> you know, talk it, to anybody. Right. Just focuses it, on his guitar. Yeah, right. I mean, and some of the riffs are so weird. It's like, okay, yeah. I mean, he's a good guitar player, but I think the other, you know, Matt Cameron is kind of understated. I don't know that a lot of people, especially if you've only known from Pearl Jam, you're probably not understanding how an incredible drummer he is. And um, so 
you've got experimentation, but you've also got incredible musicianship, which you typically only ever see in like prog bands. Mm -hmm. So you're earlier, I think when you kicked off the, the episode kind of talking about like, is this a metal band? Is it a experimental band? Is it a, you know, grunge band? I think you kind of have to throw, there's some prog elements to this too, that are like understated, but there's a musicianship and experimental aspect that's colliding here that is kind of progish mm-hmm. uh like it or not yeah do you pick that up as well rudy with regards to their sound and, and what they're doing oh, yeah absolutely uh, you know in the pearl jam 20 uh if you guys watch that special or the movie that um mm-hmm. the director put on can't remember the guy that made fast times original high anyway he was he and I've never been a big Pearl Jam fan, but it was funny. A lot of the description, he said, these are obviously guys that spent a lot of time inside and listened to everything and put it up into one mash. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds like Soundgarden, not really like Pearl Jam. Pearl Jam sounds right. like traditional <laughs> to me. But Soundgarden is like, yeah, they'll take elements from anywhere. And there, there's something through. It's funny, but friends of mine that are really into this album too. There's a drone that goes through this album too. On, not on every song, but like, prominent in room a thousand years wide that that drone is going on in searching my good eye closed in the middle there's a drone even rusty cage the fade out it's there's a there's a drone that goes through it we've had long long stone discussions about the drone in this album and what what it meant and how it carried through there so there's just this little weird things all all through this album um i'm glad you pointed that out because there is like a it's almost an ambient layer to this record that just like yes. hovers in the background. It's like it's like this thing is just like zzz, just yes. buzzing, but it's it's in the vibe of the record too. Um, it is in the like I said, with surgery with my good eye closed, and that where it has that break in the middle. It sounds like electric machinery in the background. I mean, it's just got mm-hmm. this, and I've always you know. Art reflects the its surroundings, and there's just a mechanical, electrical feel to this whole album that that goes with it. That's a really, really holds up, and is just a really unique to this album. Yeah, great. Jay, what, we did- let's talk. I want to talk about Room a Thousand Years Wide real quick. Okay. Um, does that now like kind of stepping back from the record and thinking about the success of Outshined? Does that not feel like the obvious follow-up to Outshine to you? Like, at some point, that should have been another single. how heavy that riff is and if you like outshine to me like oh well then you probably need to listen to room a thousand years wide like that is the 
to me the the sister song to to outshined um as opposed to something like jesus christ pose which like i like why really said as a single that's an album i mean it's an incredible song but like it's a right, strange I mean, choice it's a strange choice with the single for sure right mtv is not going to be super stoked about playing that they, they, um, played, they played it once and then they relegated it to after midnight i guess right the, the, the video to it um i i don't know if see i actually think somewhere is is the, the next is would be the oh, single okay. i think the issue with room of a thousand year wide is that he screams but but it's not in the context of like a lyric he's just like which is a little over the top in terms of they set themselves up as a heavy alternative band you know in terms of what their the first two singles are i feel like that pushes them into the metal end of things i just remember at that time they're like uh there was a little period there like if you had a big guitar riff like on the radio it was i'm thinking of like hum it's kind of around coming that was another one where it's like you had these songs that just had these outshined is a good example too where you know the riff just blew the speakers up (laughs) you know if it was the next song on the radio you're just like holy shit what is this it just feels like maybe one of those songs it doesn't have the hook i think that outshined has but but it's got that dive bomb at the beginning. Yeah. Like you hear that so, you're at attention. Yeah. Oh, and it's so, it so strangely the horns too. I said there should be a category. So you got the national anthem by Radiohead does the same thing. Those are the weird horns right at the end of it. You've got, I, I heard another song at one point. I can't remember what it was. It's like, yeah, there should be a category songs that strangely ends up with horns at the end. There should be. The cat is angry about this, by the way. <laughs> that's, that's my 16-year-old cat who... Um, oh, you have one, too. Uh, oh, I do God, as well. She's out of her mind. <laughs> <laughs> We've all been there. Yes. Can't be, please. <laughs> Jay, let's talk about... You know, there were some comments that were um, not as uh, positive from yeah. our patrons. Is there anything that doesn't work for you on the record? I mean, it, I get it. I get the feedback uh, for some folks. This is a, it's not a concise record, not, or at least none of the songs are. You have to be into, I think, playing. You have to be into some of the um, twists and turns it takes. I think for me, a song like Slaves and Bulldozers, I don't love. It, it, to me, it shows a little too much of the Sabbath influence for the band. Um, it's okay. It's fine. I don't dislike it, but it's just not. It's just an example of like how uh, it's just an average Black Sabbathy kind of metal song to me. And I agree with the record starts to fizzle a bit after Mind Riot. I do like Drawing Flies, and I think Holy Water is kind of a cool proto stoner rock band to me, or a song. Like I can definitely hear that as a Fu Manchu riff with maybe a different drummer, uh, which is kind of fun. Or Caius, yeah. New Damage, though, I don't, again, brings back that kind of lumbering Sabbath verse. I love Sabbath, but when you hear what this band can do beyond that, uh, anytime they kind of go back into that lumbering kind of slower 
straightforward riff without the kind of the rhythmic dynamics. Uh, it just becomes like average. So I, I think there's just a couple album tracks on here. But, you know, they're album tracks. Yeah. But for the most part, you know, I'm 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 picking on maybe one or two songs. I agree with you. Found, I've always found the track listings in here to be bizarre. It's a weird, and I don't know if it's part of their whole weird time signature thing. This is not laid out where Slaves and Bulldozers is an album closer, but it's yeah. not even closing out side one on a traditional album. Mm-hmm. They when you, you know, Rusty Cage, great, you know, great song. Uh, Outshined, never have liked that song from the beginning. Then very unique and everybody loves it. I just have never been a fan. But then Slaves and Bulldozers, it's a diss track too. It's about when they were being shopped for the, the, the record industry. So it's definitely like something to at least close the side of an album. You go from there right into Jesus Christ Pose, which is like a street fight. Yeah. And then it just kind of, at the end, Holy Water and New Damage, it's kind of, they're almost like filler tracks that are wrap, wrapping up the album. It's a, mm-hmm. it's, a weird, it's a weird listing, the way that it goes together. I think yeah, my that issue, is a strange place for that song. Um, I think my issue with Slaves and Bulldozers, Bulldozers and New Damage, like you and like was brought up, um, those are both too long for what yeah. they are. And they lack the dynamics that the band shows in their up-tempo songs. Um, it's one thing to just like pound on that, you know, heavy drop tuning riff and do the Sabbath thing. But like, I I kind of expected them to go like go into double time at some point or you know what I mean like there to be some sort of like weird change even yeah. if it's just for like two measures but just throw some sort of curveball at you other than just you know doing guitar noise halfway through the song or or whatever or like a really quiet breakdown like I just needed something unexpected out of those songs and you know that's 13 minutes of pretty much the same thing over and over again so other than that i you know holy water's fine drawing flies fine um i think you're you're on it rudy that it's not the proper track listing and to keep people engaged because it's actually i mean it's a 58 minute record but then super unknown is 70 minutes oh my god down to the upside is 65 minutes so, I mean, this is short in comparison to those yeah. two records. Ooh, those records are ridiculous. Yes. I mean, th- think about that. They basically wrote, between these three albums, like really five 70s albums. Yeah. That they could have been putting out a record basically every year in the 90s. They should have. They should have because they kind of, I know for me, they burned me out. Right. I just, I couldn't maintain interest in the band. I was just so tired of hearing them. <laughs> on the radio and the and the records even super like you're saying super known was like i was super into that record when it came out but by the time the singles i had listened to it a ton before the singles i'll be you know i mean i think i think they promoted that record for a couple years so two oh, yeah. years after like i had already been listening to the shit the shit out of it then they go through all the singles two years later i'm like i don't ever want to hear this again like i'm done Yes. Uh, so besides the uh, the length and um, the track listing, I think we're 
kind of in the same spot. Was um was Birth Birth Ritual written for this or was it written after? I mean, I know it came out after, but like, was it intended to ever be part of this album? Birth Ritual was before this. Oh, was it? Okay. So that was on the single soundtrack, which is the same year, right? That's 91. I I thought that was 92. Or was it 92? Hold on. Because that, that song would be killer on this record. Yeah, 92, sorry. Um, so, I'm, I mean, they, which means they shot the movie in 91. Yeah. So they would be putting the soundtrack together. Well, Soundgarden's in the movie, right? Yes. So I they must so. have, so if they shot it in 91, it must have been around the time that either they were making this record or getting ready to promote it for it to come out. Um, so I would have, I, my guess is that it was probably from the same sessions since it's included in the bonus material from this record oh okay it is yeah but they must not have wanted to put it on the record or they were or they were like we'll give you this song for the soundtrack i don't know what the i i actually googled that to try to figure out what the story was i was doing the same i couldn't quite piece together the timing um i think they i think they wrote it earlier if i'm if i'm not mistaken it's been, been around for a while but imagine like pulling Slaves and Bulldozers or New Damage or one of those songs and putting that on here. That's pretty smoking. Right. Because then you, you have like, you know, three, four, you know, really smoking songs to kind of build the record around. Um, right now they're kind of front loaded and then Slaves and Bulldozers since as track three makes no sense and it, it is it is such a bizarre listening isn't it yeah because yeah. once you if you're listening to it straight through and you get through jesus christ pose you're like holy crap where's this album going i mean <laughs> fire at some point and then it you know and searching my good eye clothes is a great opener for side two but cds are out and there is no side two anymore i mean i'm still looking at it as you know i flip the record yeah. over great opener for for the second side but that doesn't and new damage it just doesn't it's like, all right, that's it. <laughs> that's, like, yeah. that's, that's what we're closing on. I, the song's fine, but it's just as it. Yeah, there's so much other dynamic stuff on there. And I really feel like Slaves and Bulldozers was just an excuse to hear all four octaves of Cornell's vocal range. I mean, I, <laughs> I will still listen to it. I, you know, oh, yeah. I listen to it as much as I listen to other ones, but just to hear him go those crazy high notes is, is amazing. And that guy had, I, I still think he's so underrated as a singer. I think he's one of the two or three best rock singers ever. Yeah, and he was not included on the top 200 singers of all time list by Rolling Stone. How so? What, I, okay. Are they, are, they, are they even published anymore? Yeah. Uh, Do they, they still talk about music? They put on. So I I believe, and actually I made a TikTok video calling Radio Rolling oh. Stone a piece of shit, and oh. and that they basically been a piece of shit since they started. Because if you go back and look at the reviews from like oh, yeah. the 60s and 70s. Like I appreciate Lester Bangs as far as being a an interesting writer, but some of his takes were really like he trashed both the first Black Sabbath record and the first MC5 record. He would rate it later, go back and relent that MC5. Read read, read the reviews of of Led Zeppelin when Led Zeppelin first three Led Zeppelin records. All bad. (laughs) What's funny? You think of them as being like U2's like champion. They gave the Unforgettable Fire a bad review. Oh yeah, no, they're. No, they 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 wanted avant-garde stuff that nobody had ever heard before. It's all you know, Patty Smith. Uh, Patty Smith dominated. Uh, Patty Smith passed out on stage. It was uh, epic. And now it's just like whatever Bruce Springsteen puts out an album, uh, whenever U two puts out an album, whenever 
one of Jan Wenner's friends puts out a record, <laughs> it's going to get a good review. Tim, I think we have a new uh, segment or marketing idea for the podcast. What? You and I go and look at <gasps> old Rolling Stone old reviews. Old Stone reason ripped the shit out of them. <laughs> we should just start a, start a podcast called Rolling Stone Sucks, You Dumb Boomers. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and then man. get sued. Yeah, for sure. If you listen, hey, uh, if you listen to Jan Winter on Joe Rogan from last year, you'll you'll probably see why he's he's a little out there. <laughs> he's yeah. also in control of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which is why yeah. that's not. Yeah, he kind of controls like who's gonna have a back catalog in a career and who won't. Um, mm-hmm. What What do you think about searching with my good eye closed? You mentioned that how that song ends, Rudy, which I agree. It feels a little like. Oh, maybe, maybe there's a better ending for this. Um, does that work better if that's the last track, though, with that ending? Possibly. It seems more like an opener to me. And mm. I know when they were their last tour, um, when I saw them the last time, the last few years that they toured, they were opening most of the most of the gigs with that, and then closing with "Slaves and Bulldozers." It's a great opening track, but Rusty Cage, you can't argue with that for an opening track either. I mean, right, and it jumps. Yeah. Yeah. So I got no I got no quarrel with that. I just I love searching. Could have got up something better than a fade out, but what are you gonna do? You're gonna go to the dinosaur steps like you did in Rusty Cage. I mean, that's stuff we already used that. Right. You know, <laughs> the dinosaur steps, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you just end it with, you know, you got that dinner dun. Like, okay. That's how they that's how they ended <laughs> in concert and it was fine. They just yeah, wrapped just it up like and that. And, and then usually blew right into Spoon Man, which was an amazing one-two punch. I was so, so excited. I hadn't seen them in so long. You know, they had reformed, but something for yeah, the last time in 2011. But they, they, they were killed. And that, yeah, that one-two punch was amazing to listen to. Or if you're going to have it fade out, this is, you, you fade it out with um, the, the, the spoken word thing, like the, more of that. At the CNC. <laughs> yeah, like you, yeah. you more you you know you you bookend it. Yeah, <laughs> that's you got to that's got to utilize that or not. Um, anything else, Jay? You want to cover before we get to our final uh or, or review uh decisions? This uh just one observation. Does this record have any real guitar solos? I guess there's some. He tends to on the noisy side. Yeah. Something like like in New Damage, like I don't know where it is in that song. It's like at the maybe around the let me look for it. That's honestly one of the reasons I love this album. Around 330, yeah. he starts going into a solo and 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 um Matt Cameron's doing a lot of like tom rolls and stuff. It's like a big build. Yeah, it's slowly gathering steam, and he's soloing over top of it. But I guess I just didn't. They don't pop. They're not like. They're more into like the middle sections being these cool, grooves or breakdowns without the guitar solo necessarily being the center point. Which I yeah, appreciate. I don't think of him as a soloist really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, I mean, like later in, albums, later albums, they started following a really traditional form. It would be right. like verse, verse, solo, chord. I mean, it just was it was almost got formulaic even though mm-hmm. songs are good you know loved a lot of the songs but it's like you guys are it, it just seemed a lot of the stuff on super unknown has got that same kind of pattern over and over again and that's one of the reasons i love this 
this weird album is it doesn't have a lot of that. It's just riff. Uh, you compared it to Black Sabbath. It is so black. This whole album to me is really Black Sabbathy. It's got just riffs everywhere that lives on the riff. Yeah. I think what what I like about Kim Thale in terms of his style is he's such a good compliment to Cornell, who's a just a rhythm player as far as guitar, but obviously he has that drumming background. So it gives his vocals a little bit of a cadence difference. Yeah. Yeah. For um, sure. But like in G or yeah, it's in Jesus Christ pose in the chorus parts. Like Fayol is doing these like double bends, like rare, 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 rare. And they, I mean, so perfectly matches what Cornell's doing on vocal that you don't want a guy who's going to break into like a pentatonic, you know, finger tapping solo for this band. Like, I don't, I just, I don't think that that really. Works. Well, they even later on the record, they even bring the horns in to kind of take that place. Like, right. Uh, almost the horns become the counter to the vocal instead of like another guitar part. Right. So it seemed like maybe a conscious choice to try to not fall into that and try to find other ways to, you know, melodically introduce new ideas or whatever, or play against the vocal or, you know, have a jam section that's cool, but not just a guitar solo. Right. Wonder what it would sound like if you've got like a Hammond B3 organ on this record. Oh man. Get some John Lord going. Oh <laughs> um, how heavy would, would that be? Like? Well, you know that so it was Johnny Cash covered Rusty Cage like right after this album came out. Um, yep. and that was huge. I think yep. I think Johnny Cash's version of Rusty Cage was bigger than than Soundgarden's. You know how Steve McDonald from Red Cross made a, a bass version? Of the White Stripes album. Yeah. Yep. Somebody needs to make Bad Organ Finger, where they add <laughs> organ to every one of these songs in like the way of like Deep Purple. And yeah. That would be, that would be sweet. Nice Leslie organ going. All right. Let's some get John, into some John Lord. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Maybe some Steve Wakeman. I don't know. Maybe we'll get oh, real crazy. No, 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 I don't know about that. <laughs> John Lord could be cool. Get the cape going. Um, let's talk about our final ratings for this record, Jay. Worthy album, better EP, and decent single. Where do you land? Worthy album. I mean, it's it's in the sweet like I said, sweet spot of their catalog for me. And uh, I only nitpick a couple tunes that are, you know, a little on the kind of slow meandering side, mm-hmm. and even those are, you know pretty damn good sabbath tunes <laughs> uh so yeah we're the album it's it's a lot of fun and it holds up really well like i don't know that this sounds 90s to me this just sounds like a good hard rock record that could have come out this year i agree i'm with you we're the album i think we can debate the track listing and and there's a couple songs that could be like we talked about it could be trimmed up or um even removed but this is like you said this is their sweet spot in terms of the the raw energy that they had on the first couple records and really refining it first with louder than love and then into this um and then they got over refined like this the sugar became a little too sweet after this too much corn syrup and uh 
the high fructose uh, took over. Hey man, they, so, they, they had mortgages and well, uh, maybe maybe some divorces. They had put bills. They, to pay. they were a band when you made a lot of money as a band. In fact, when they got back together, they weren't planning on getting back together, but they said they had property and stuff. I was reading an interview with Ken Thale, and he was saying, you know, we had all this property and stuff that we had bought along the way, and we needed to deal with it. We had all these holdings, and he goes, we had to, you know, we put the group back together, and then we then they just started playing again. They had those. They had a couple of shows that the, they called themselves New Dragons, and they played at the Music Box up in in Seattle. Just these couple of surprise shows, and everybody went nuts for it. Yeah, and I read at one point. I mean, this was like known back in the day when Super Unknown first came out. I mean, it was selling well, but when they were touring originally for it, they were only getting like two hundred bucks a week because they owed the record label so much money from. <laughs> all the previous records that had not paid out essentially because mm-hmm. it although this went double platinum it took five years to go double platinum it wasn't an immediate like huge selling record the way that nevermind was and the way that super unknown would be but it took them a long time to recoup all of the debt that they had with AM. so imagine like four grown men and you have 200 bucks for the whole week to spend when you're on the road so you're like all four all of your meals uh you know anything you want to do you've got 200 bucks every week <laughs> and you're on the road for six eight months at a time that's mm-hmm. that had to be like yeah not fun um, yeah, so i hope, hope by the time they reunited they actually were making money instead of uh paying debt down <laughs> <laughs> uh rudy i'm gonna ask but i know the answer Oh yeah, obviously worthy album, and I and I'm always I always think of in terms of uh, you know back in the late '60s, early '70s, somebody bought the Doors album because they like Light My Fire, you know, some 14 year old girl, and then she heard the end and goes, "What the hell's going on here?" <laughs> I think about people listening to Black Hole Sun or Fell on Black Days and goes, "Oh, let's try one of their older albums," and hearing Jesus Christ post and <laughs> you know pulling it off and throwing it out the window. <laughs> <laughs> They got they got like threats when that single was released. Cause you know, people Yeah, that we were still in sort of the satanic panic uh yep. Christian and stuff. I think he specifically wrote that about Perry Farrell, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, really? Yeah, because he said that he said in the abstract it's about these these rock stars who act like you know they stand there with a Jesus Christ pose. And that was right. something that Perry Farrell was known for. And I I think there was there was a little bit of tension between Jane's Addiction and Soundgarden, if I remember right. That Interesting. Makes sense. Well, per- well, that they were on the first Lollapalooza. Yes. So was that this year? Uh, it was it- after this. Or was it after? Yeah. Yeah, it was after this. But you know, I don't know if there was friendly infighting or or what it was, but I and I I don't know that for a fact, but I just I, I had heard that that the were that lyric came from was that Perry Farrell's tendency to hold his arms out and do the whole Jesus Christ pose. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. <laughs> now that knowing what we know, he's yeah. a polarizing figure. Yes, he is. <laughs> uh, our patrons were overwhelmingly with us. Jay, 89% went with Worthy the album 4% went with better EP and 7% went with decent single. So I think we know who we're not impressed. We didn't and mess it up. We're all on the same page. Yeah. 
look, if if we could get those sorts of results, uh, we would all be in much better place if we were all right. on that level of agreement about we something. Need a, we need a little dissent. I appreciate that. Yes, four plus seven, 11% dissent is fine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you just need the 89% 15, 15, to get things done. I don't know. We might have to think about doing a different podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there you go. Um, we need to thank Rudy for bringing this to us. I'm glad we got to talk about this. I know, like, people were like, "Why are you talking about Soundgarden? They were one of the biggest bands of the decade." And I'm like, "Yeah, but to understand the decade, some of these records need to be talked about." Yeah, I think we need to get all. We'll eventually get all to all of them. Right. Oh, wasn't it, Every wasn't record. It over, on one of your anniversary shows, wasn't it overwhelming? Everybody wanted to go over Nevermind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, I think there's a time and a place. The, we have to keep them in. Right. Uh, you know, we did the Guns N' Roses Usual Illusion 1 and 2, which wouldn't seem to fit any sort of just criteria for the show. But in talking about the 90s, they're an important part of it when you're trying to like right. understand the whole thing. And, you know, well, we want to, I think that we want to, I think pop culture standpoint i it, it seems like guns and roses gets painted as an 80s band and actually they were incredibly important to the 90s right as you can see like they took the south garden out for like, like a year or something like yeah i always look at gnr kind of the bridge between hair bands and getting into back into real rock and roll i mean yeah. if you look at the videos to welcome to the jungle they got the teased hair and the spandex and that goes away mm-hmm. pretty quick and by the time patience comes out they've got their they're wearing do rags and, yeah. and jeans. So, so yeah, yeah kind, of, kind of a transitionary band. And uh, and Axel wanted to be Elton Elton John by the Usual Illusion albums. Like he was very um, open about it. I mean, there was a what was it I read recently? Like they he played a song for the band in the studio and like referenced a very specific Elton John song, like this is what I'm going for. And that's when, Oh, it was Steven Adler. And that was when Steven Adler was like, I'm, this is not, I'm not in this band anymore. (laughs) Cause uh, yeah, I think, I don't know what it was with regards to, Oh, it was on the discord. Cause it was uh, somebody about Matt Sorum talking about, talking about joining GNR. That's what it was. Uh, but, but anyway, the other thing too, I, I knew I had to go a little more mainstream because I know you're still traumatized by Royal Trucks, Tim. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the 30th anniversary of that album this year, by the way. Uh, maybe I should revisit it. Yep. <laughs> see if my in two years. If, I mean, it was in the. I was suffering from a pandemic, uh, you know, trauma <laughs> at that time too. My my opinion might have been uh, swayed. I, I almost picked the Low Fidelity All Stars album, How to Operate with a Blown Mind, but then we would have had to talk about Molly for an hour and a half, and I didn't want to do that. My kids might <laughs> listen to this podcast. Oh, that has a great Greg Dooley song on it. It does. Um, well, we'll we'll save that for another discussion. Thank you for bringing this to us. This was a yes. fun fun chat. Thank you guys. No thanks. It's a lot of fun. Good I would never to... have known about op- octave e tuning if it wasn't for uh, <laughs> getting into this record. Just a good excuse to to spend some time with this record again. Um, and I did look it up. The 2008 Universal Studios fire um, did did include the master tapes for Bad Motorfinger. Um, the reissue they used digital only backups that they had kept. So 
yeah. Um, they weren't notified until 2015, by the way. Which is totally screwed up. <laughs> you don't call every band immediately and go, um, we have a we have bad news. You wait uh, seven years. Mm-hmm. Um, seven years is not the wait when you join Patreon and vote in the polls like our patrons did for this episode or in the polls for our monthly tournaments that you can submit a record to at our website, digmeoutpodcast.com. You go there, you submit a record, and then our patrons, like our uh, patron Rudy, who suggested this record, who's joined us for this episode, and our new patron, uh, Rich, who just joined us, they get to vote in the polls for the tournaments as well as suggest records. Today we got suggested a record. Somebody suggested the Per Shop Boys because they mistyped Pet. So there was quite the hilarity. Uh, I on the, saw that on the Discord. Per so, uh, Shop Boys. That's pretty good. Per the Shop Boys. Yeah. Um, Patreon, uh, Patreon is also where you can read the box newsletter, which comes out every week. Uh, at the end of every week with new releases relevant to 80s 90s and aughts releases that we cover that's right we're doing the aughts this year for our bonus patreon episodes we have over like 25 80s episodes from the last couple years that are in our patreon only archive you can check out and then this year we're starting with the aughts next month will be our first episode you can uh check out all those episodes of Patreon plus the box newsletter, which includes two reviews of new releases of music, books, television shows, documentaries, etc., relevant to the podcast. And then lastly, Apple Podcasts is where you go to leave some positive feedback about this podcast. Podcast, podcast, podcast. For Jay, I'm Tim. We're out. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Bye.